invite you at this time to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be finishing up the Sermon on the Mount this morning with Matthew chapter 7, and the words to which I would call your attention are to be found in verses 28 and 29. I was looking back, and we actually stepped into the Sermon on the Mount exactly one year ago on May the 1st, 2021. We've, of course, had a lot of different sermons over that time, but uh, this morning we'll finish up the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Let's hear now the inerrant and infallible word of Almighty God. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our holy and righteous God, we come before you to ask for your blessing on our time in your word this morning. We come to sit at your feet. We come to learn from you. And we acknowledge that the Preaching of your word will bear no fruit in our lives apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. We sit here, sadly, preacher included, as folks who think we know it all. And uh, so, Father, we ask that you would give us a spirit of humility and that we would look to the beauty and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, Many of you will remember the words of John F. Kennedy. Uh, Some of you are probably around when John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Um, Now those may or may not have been words original to John F. Kennedy, but he spoke them in public and we remember them. And some of you will repeat those words from time to time and you'll say things like this, well, we need more people in our day who are asking what they can do for their country rather than mooching off the country. You believe that those are words to live by. And on the other hand, you'll also say, I don't believe that John F. Kennedy was a very good president. You respect the words, but you don't respect the man. Many presidents are like that, aren't they? On the other hand, you respect the character of some men. You might think perhaps of a small town pastor who is just there, Sunday after Sunday, preaching the word, is faithful in what he does, or a father who's there, and he's teaching you the way to go, and he gives you words that you remember. But no one really does. It's just you. You respect the character of some men, but you don't remember their words. Well, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't make that disconnection. One of the things that Matthew teaches us this morning is that we have to remember Christ and His words. They are both essential to us. You must have the man, and you must have what He said. They cannot be separated from one another. With Christ, you must revere Him and His words. You cannot take one without the other. And so, 
The main thing that we'll be thinking about this morning as we look at Matthew 7, 28 and 29 you, is that you must be amazed at Christ's teaching and at Christ Himself. You must be amazed at Christ's teaching and at Christ Himself. Now, we've come to the end of the sermon. Well, not my sermon, but Jesus' sermon. Uh, The sermon and this statement mark the end of the inauguration phase of Christ's ministry. Remember, we we began in Matthew with the birth of Christ all the way back in 2000. And we looked at how Christ was born. And then we went on and we began to look at how John the Baptist came along and, and told us how the one coming after him would be God himself. He's quoting Isaiah 40. And Jesus was baptized. And his public ministry was inaugurated. And he went on from there out into the wilderness. You remember how he was tempted by Satan. And after he was tempted by Satan, he came back and and he went into the region of Galilee and began to heal and to teach. In fact, I'll invite you to turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 4. And verse 23, we we remember the, the whole context of this sermon. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And what came of that? Well, lots of folks began to follow him. He went across the lake to the Decapolis and and people from the Decapolis are following him. People from Jerusalem and Judea went up to Galilee to listen to him and they followed him around and at the end of this sermon here we are with these words hanging in the air as it were having seen the exhibition of his power both in his healing and in his preaching here he is surrounded by crowds who are enthralled by what he was doing. And at the end of his sermon, the crowds are enthralled by his teaching. Christ's miracles and his teaching testified to who he was. And and so as we think about the end of this sermon, we have to reach a conclusion that it's not only It's not only the calming of the sea or the healing of lepers that testified to who Christ was. His teaching also testified to who He was. The miracles and His teaching do this. His miracles, in other words, then complement His teaching not vice versa. We're going to think about this concluding statement here by Matthew under two headings. First of all, that Christ's teaching must affect you. And then secondly, that Christ's person must affect you. Now, think of this in context. All of these people who have been affected by Christ, seeing a loved one healed, 
A lame man given legs that can function again, or a blind man giving, given eyes that can function again. These are people who have been affected by the power of Christ. And now we think about how Christ's teaching must affect us, first of all. Christ's teaching must affect you. We've reached a transition point. Notice verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings... Now, I want to make an editorial comment here. Matthew is a biographer of Christ. Yes, that's true. But Matthew is also a theologian constructing a biography of Christ. And, and, and just as any, any writer would do, he, he is adding little signposts in here for you to follow along, uh, little breadcrumbs, so that you can pick up on not just that this happened, but Matthew's point is for you to pick up on the significance as well. So I want you to, want you to follow something with me here. Notice, here we have, and it came to pass, or when Jesus finished these sayings. Now, hold your finger here and turn to chapter 11, verse 1. Matthew 11, 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there. Now turn over to chapter 13, verse 53. Chapter 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Now turn to chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. One last place, turn to chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, dot, dot, dot. What I'm trying to point out to you, do you see, is that there is a structure to Matthew's gospel. This is not just, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But Matthew is writing, he is writing a remembrance of the life of Christ in such a way as to present Christ to you as someone. And he's given you signposts. Often we think of Matthew's gospel as structured in five segments. It is structured around five sermons. Why, why the number five? Well, it is a reflection on the Torah, the five books of the Torah. Matthew is presenting Christ to you as a king, the preacher of God's word. Here, as we go back to chapter 7, verse 28, notice, notice what's happening just very delicately up to this point, you and I have been sitting in the crowd, haven't we? 
You and I have been sitting listening, listening to the sermon, uh, observing the words, hearing them and taking them in, meditating upon them. At verse 28, now the perspective in the story changes and what seat are you in? Now you're looking at the crowd. Perspective changes from that of the crowd looking on and listening. And now we are the narrator looking at the crowd and their response. And, and what do we see as we look upon the faces of these people as the words now just fall to earth and the sound of the birds chirping, chirping and, and the wind rustling through the grass around and the little babies uh, crying out, that returns to our ears. What do we see there on that mountainside? What we see is an astonished people. It's just, it's just silence. Jesus doesn't say, and now let's close with prayer. He just lets his word fall. The idea of being astonished in the New Testament is only used, listen, it is only used with reference to the preaching and the teaching of Christ. Every time he finishes... The crowds will be astonished at his words. In fact, in Acts, in chapter 13, verse 12, it is used after Paul preached to the proconsul there, Sergius Paulus, who was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Christ's teaching, it had an effect upon the people around him. When, when Matthew refers to, to, to Christ's teaching, how should we understand that? What are they astonished at? Now we could say, well, he was an amazing teacher. Look back at the amazing illustrations and parables and, and proverbs that he drew out and the way that he held the people's attention, uh, making things vivid in their minds. He, he was a great teacher. That has nothing to do with what Matthew's talking about. If you've got a, a King James Version in your, in your lap, you actually see that the crowds were astonished, what? By his doctrine. This has nothing to do with whether he used his hands or kept them behind him or walked around at pace. We know he was seated. It has nothing to do with his illustrations. Matthew is saying that the content of his teaching astonished the people. He was feeding them meat. Christ was teaching them doctrine. He's not a jazzy teacher with excellent illustrations. He's not a motivational speaker. The crowd's amazement stood, literally stood upon what Christ had said and not how He said it. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we, we have another scene. And what's, what we see there in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is all of these disciples who are gathered together, perhaps in the upper room, and it says that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It doesn't mean there that they are sitting with bated breath as the apostles taught them. They certainly did that, maybe not with bated breath. Some fell asleep and fell out of windows. 
What this means is that they were being very, very careful as a people to listen to what was said and then to go home and put it into practice. They're devoting themselves to the content of the teaching. This means that they were, they're thinking about it. They're repeating it. They are taking the sermon, going home, uh, holding a small group study and re- remembering what was said. They sought to implement that teaching in their lives. And this has significant meaning as Christ, listen, Christ has now concluded four meditations upon judgment. Four meditations on the two ways, the narrow gate and the broad gate. The sandy foundation versus the rocky foundation. The path of life and the path of destruction. What Matthew here is showing us in this vivid illustration, he is teaching the disciple of Christ that the disciple of Christ gives attention to the content of Christ's teaching. Recently, I have had the opportunity to minister to a man, uh, to a particular individual who is in unrepentant sin. And in conversations with this particular person, I will say, you need to repent. You're sinning against the Lord here. The the Scriptures clearly say to you that you are in sin and and you need to repent. And and if you don't, you you cannot have any confidence in your final state of heaven. And, And this particular individual will say, but I profess faith. But Jesus has plainly said, Not everyone who professes Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. The question for you and me this morning as we think about this is, you could ask yourself this, am I moved by Christ's teaching. No, you can't hear Him. You can't see Him. You, as we confess in the second commandment, you ought not envision Him in any way. You listen to Him. You listen. Are you moved by Christ's teaching? Can, can you identify objectively in your life how your life is being altered the more you encounter the teaching of Jesus Christ? You must. If you're not moved by his teaching, then you cannot say that you've been affected by him. Not only is it essential for his teaching to affect us, but you must also be affected by his person. Notice then, secondly, how Christ's person must affect you. Now, Go back to verse 28 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught them as one having authority. Now you can, you can read that statement and you can say, wow, all, all the people were 
impressed with the authority of Christ. They took him as an authoritative figure, one that they had to uh, listen to. I, I actually think that this is Matthew's comment. Notice how it's constructed. The crowds were astonished. It's Matthew who tells you, even if they don't know, Matthew's telling you why they were astonished. He begins with the statement, for. He's explaining something to you. For, he was teaching them as one who had authority. This is an explanatory statement. Why, Why is the crowd amazed? That's what our question might be. Why were they amazed? Matthew says, well, I'll tell you why they're amazed, because he teaches with authority. Matthew looks at the person of Christ and reminds us that this is one who is vested with authority to teach. You think about the picture of Elijah and Elisha. You remember that transition point, go from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, and, and Elijah has to go to... Elisha and he takes the mantle off and he uh, Elisha's out there plowing the field and Elijah goes along and he just threw the mantle on him and walks away Jesus has authority he is vested with the authority to teach he has one who is wearing the mantle of the prophet now Matthew compared Jesus to the scribes, this is another reason we ought to take this as Matthew's comment to us. He says, as their scribes, not as their scribes, not as our scribes, instead of as our scribes. So this is Matthew, Matthew who's explaining this to you. What is a scribe? Well, you know what a scribe is. It's somebody who writes things down, right? You you scribble it down. This would be a really good note taker in in the worship service. You're you're a scribe. Um, Ezra. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, is, was described as a scribe, somebody who wrote down the law. But it's a little bit more than just somebody who writes the notes down. They are, they're sort of the guardians of the scrolls. So if you went to the library and you said, now where can I find uh, Thoreau? Help me to find the biography section of the library. They would point you in that direction. This is what a scribe did. They're the guardians of the scrolls. They keep, keep the Dewey Decimal catalog, right? They, they, they are the ones who know where everything is to be found in the scrolls. They know the jot and the tittle. Uh, they're the keepers of the scrolls. And, and so they, they were studied the scrolls. Why is this? Because they're kind of like our wives function. They're the keepers of the calendar. What's going on in our family? What are the days that we need to remember? This is what the scribes did. When is the holy day? When do we observe Purim? Uh, When do we observe the day of atonement? The scribes maintained all of this. They're the keepers of legal documents. So if you gave your uh, wife a certificate of divorce, you gave a copy to the scribe, and they keep all of these records. What Matthew is telling you is that Jesus is... When you think of the authority of Christ, you don't just think of one who's written it all down and memorized it and then can regurgitate it to you. That's what a scribe could do. Well, where's this verse? Oh, Isaiah 40. Where where do we find this day? Or you go back to uh, Exodus chapter 12. Christ 
Christ is not just a scribe. The incarnate Christ is the one who was ordained to teach the Word of God. This is a reflection, as it were, upon his faithfulness as a king. What does a faithful king of Israel do? Remember what his first responsibility was. What does a faithful king of Israel do? Number one, day one in office. What are the first 100 days in office of a king of Israel? Well, uh, the scribes are going to bring him the book of the law, and they're going to set it down, and they're going to lock him in a room, and the rest of his time he's going to write every word down in his own scroll, hook it onto his hip, on his iPhone clip, and he's going to walk around with the whole book of the law in his own handwriting written down. Deuteronomy 17. The king of Israel was a scribe who was also vested with authority to declare and to enforce God's word. This is Christ Jesus. Christ is ordained by God to declare God's word to you. But I get this picture. When Christ ascended that mountain and he sat down, you must see him as seated on his throne. Not a throne made with the hands of men. He is seated on a throne that He made for Himself. He is sitting there taking the stance of a king before His subjects. All of His subjects are gathered around Him. And this is no random gathering. Anytime the tabernacle was constructed in Israel, what would happen? They would, here go the clans of Gershom and Merari, and they would put up the poles, and they would put up all of the, the surroundings and the hangings. And then one by one, Judah would come, and then Reuben, and then uh, Judah, and then Gad, and all of the tribes would encircle that tabernacle. But there was a third layer. Anybody who was dismissed from the clan, dismissed from the tribe, they were in the outside of that. Here as Christ is seated upon His throne, administering the Word of God to His people, all of Israel is surrounded around Him. They encircle Him. And there are three circles. Christ in the middle, and the disciples in the immediate surrounding vicinity representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and then around him, the outsiders, Israel itself. Before Christ are his people, and arranged around him are the camp of Israel before God. Therefore, what does Christ represent here? Who is Christ? In the camp of Israel, who is he? He is the tabernacle. Now, do you see the significance of that? Moses 
was a scribe who ascended up to the mountaintop and God dictated to him the word of God and Moses came down and told those words as a scribe to Israel. And up and down and up and down and up and down he went in Exodus 19. Speaking to God, speaking for God. Speaking to God, speaking for God. But when these people surround Christ on that mountainside, they are not at the feet of a scribe. They are at the feet of God the King. Speaking to them from his fleshly tabernacle. They are hearing the word of God spoken directly to them. This is what Matthew is picturing to you. Here he is seated upon the throne that he built with his hands to declare his word to his people. Living in a fleshly tabernacle. Therefore, what Matthew is saying is when you draw near to Christ, you draw near to God. Jesus is not one who just read the scrolls. He hadn't memorized everything and, and could regurgitate it to, to you. He is one who proclaimed the very wisdom of God. He is a true king. One of the things that we have probably wrestled with recently more and more is is how do we respond as, as a nation when the people in authority over us lie to us? How do we respond when the people in authority over us lie to us? Well, it's, it's total disarray. It becomes anarchy. But Matthew depicts Christ as one who not only speaks to you, but he is one who speaks authoritatively. He is not one who receives an authority. He has authority in and of himself. He is the one who declares God's word to you. He is the one who has healed these people, showing that all things are in submission to him. And Matthew reminds us that we must have, listen, you must have the whole Christ You see, you can't separate the Word from the Word. He's only your King when you come to Him and receive His Word with equal authority to that which He has. You and I, as we think about this morning, have to be amazed at Christ's teaching and at Christ Himself. What does it mean to have the whole Christ? Well, it means that you take hold of Him as the one whom your soul desires. You must take hold of Him as an authoritative teacher and take hold of the content of His teaching. This is the whole Christ. The, the scribes were men, think about this now, the scribes were men who, who they, they took great notes They devotedly read God's law. But here's, here's a point that we have to walk away with. Not every scribe is a disciple. Not every scribe is a disciple. Some, some will devote themselves to Christ's person and they will, they will, they will just revel in 
oh, he's so gracious. Look how loving he was. Look how he hugged that leper. Boy, that's so kind. What? Look how he, he, he didn't clothe himself as a wealthy man. He had no home. And, and, and you love Christ, but totally ignore the content of his teaching. Jesus is very careful. Matthew is teaching you to observe that you must take hold of him as a whole. Don't be a scribe. Don't just take the words down and not love the person. And don't love the person without taking the words down. This is true discipleship. The whole Christ, man and teaching. The true disciple of Christ is the one who loves the person and the teaching. In chapter 13, we're going to get, get there in a few years maybe. Jesus, he turned to his disciples at one point. He said to them, have you understood these things? Have you understood these things? And they all, probably Peter first, said, yes. So he keeps on looking at him. He says this, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is one who will bring out of his treasure things old and new. And of course they say, well, we don't understand that part. <laughs> every scribe who is trained for the kingdom of heaven is one who brings out of his treasure things more, uh, old, new and what is old. The simple question is this. Is Christ your treasure? Is Christ your treasure? Some of these people on this mountainside would have been astonished at Christ's teaching and been damned on the day of judgment. You've got to have the whole Christ. Is Christ your treasure? Then you must also treasure His teaching. If Christ's teaching is your treasure, then you must also treasure Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that You are the one who by Your grace and in an act of unparalleled love and mercy, sent Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh. He, in that incarnate Christ, embodying for us the whole triune Godhead. Why? So that we might be taught to love God. I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning gathered around this word. Lord, let us be among the disciples. Let us be among those who, who gather at the tabernacle, who, who, who sit at the feet of Christ, who love to hear Christ because we love Christ. And because we love Christ, we love to hear from Christ. And let us be a, a people who love piety, who love holiness. Why? Because Jesus loves holiness. And we want to be with our Jesus Conform us, body and soul, to His image. We pray 
for the sake of his glory. Amen.